Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church on this Sunday morning. Let's begin by praying. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you, Father, for the ultimate sacrifice on your part, for giving us your only son, on his part, for dying for our sins. We thank you also, Father, for the resurrection. We thank you that his resurrection is a clear indication that one day we too will be risen at the rapture and receive our resurrection bodies like he has now. Father, this morning we want to pray for all those believers in Christ who are suffering this morning. We do want to pray for our friend Calvin this morning who has sustained a broken wrist. We pray that uh, he not be in pain and that the surgery that he's going to get next week will be successful. We pray for all of the folks around the world, Christians, members of the body that are suffering because of persecution in particular. We also ask this morning for the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit as we continue to study the Gospel of John. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, just, just a couple of announcements, reminders as we get started this morning. Um, we will be having no services on Thursday, August 25th, or Sunday, August 28th. We'll be taking a break. Again, no services Thursday, August 25th, or Sunday, August 28th. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of August, and that means we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper a week from today. Also, as always, I want to remind everybody to keep keep praying for, in particular, our missionaries and countries that are and churches in countries that are under persecution in particular. And that's pretty much all of the countries uh, that we that we have people in there that we support. In particular, we do once again ask you to pray for the saints in India, Pastor Adams, um, and uh, in particular, the uh, outreach that he has done that we've supported to the lepers. There's a, there's a group of 150 lepers that are in hospitals right now, and they needed medicine and blankets and Today they have them, and we just want to celebrate the Lord that that we um, that they that they have gotten what they need. All right, let's stand up and have a couple of songs this morning before we get started. time to worship come now is the time to give your heart come just as you are to worship come just as you are
Well, that was just for us anyway. <laughs> Not really. All right. Good morning again, everybody. Title of today's message, of course, comes from our passage this morning. Your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ tells Martha, the grieving sister of Lazarus this morning, as, as he approaches her, as she approaches him and has a conversation with him. All right, let's begin now in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 14. John, chapter 11, verse 14. I'll read the passage and then we'll get started with the message. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. And Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This morning, I'm going to start by making some remarks about Thomas. Poor Thomas gets a bad rap. We're going to see that that's an undeserved bad rap. After that, we'll then move on with Jesus and disciples as they reach the town of Bethany near Jerusalem, the, the home in the village or the town of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And again, verse 16, therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, that means twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. In verse 16, Thomas takes the lead after Jesus has said, we're going. He takes the lead and turns to his fellow disciples and he says, we're going to follow Jesus. Let's follow him. 
He fully expected that the Lord would die. And not only that, but they, the disciples, would die with him. And again, I mentioned already, but Thomas gets a bad rap among most Christians. What do we call him? Doubting Thomas, Thomas, right? But you know what? That is not the Thomas we find here in verse 16 at all. Thomas is mentioned in the list of apostles in Matthew and Mark and Luke. But only here in John do we get a real sense of his character. And here in verse 16, he is loyal. He says, we are going to go with Jesus. And he's courageous. And we're going to die with him. Now, he was half right, as we're going to see in a moment. But, you know, here again, his loyalty comes through. His his courage comes through. So he's not just doubting Thomas, if he's that at all. But he's also loyal and courageous. In fact, if you read, and we will do this this morning, the passages where Thomas is mentioned, there are three. Um, You find out that what he really is, is a realist. He's pragmatic. He's unsentimental. And yes, hard-nosed. He's hard-nosed because he wants the evidence. He's, he's a realist. He thinks like the, the mind of someone who is looking at things as a typical human being, and if there's something he doesn't understand or doesn't seem right, he's going to speak up and say something about it. By the way, that's also his courage, we're going to see in a minute, because there's times when he speaks up and everybody's thinking the same thing, but he's the only one that has enough courage to say what's on his mind. Now, the, the fact of the matter is, is that while he's never afraid to call it like he sees it, and by the way, he's almost always wrong in how he sees it, nevertheless, he's, he's straightforward. And again, the fact of the matter is that the other disciples are seeing it typically the same way that he does see it. And I dare say that if we were in the situation that the disciples were in, with their partial, we could say weak understanding of who Jesus is at this point, then we might see it the same way. We might be tempted to say, you know what? We love him. He's our Lord. We're going to follow him, but we're going to die. That wouldn't be at all an an irrational thought. However, it's looking at things from the human's viewpoint on it, not taking into account who Jesus is. And of course, that takes faith. And that's where Jesus is always leading his disciples, and everybody that he comes into contact with. He wants them to stop not believing and to start believing in him. And, and as, he, as we have mentioned, that is what happens in this gospel. And what also happens in this gospel is that, that John documents in the, in the course and progress of Jesus' public ministry, how Jesus reveals more and more and more about who he is. And so that and that is, again, it's, it's to strengthen their faith. Now, the concept of strengthening faith might seem a little foreign to us who think about it in terms of justification by faith, meaning that we hear the gospel and we believe it and we're saved. But at the same time, OK, we need to understand that, first of all, they didn't have the benefit of the written canon like we do. For example, we have the benefit of the whole gospel of John. And so in an hour, okay, maybe two, we can read the whole gospel and and have a lot more information about who Jesus is than any of them had until the very end of that gospel after he rose from the dead. 
So he has the sense he's taking people through the inauguration of who he is in his public ministry. We get the benefit because then we have the gospel writers writing all these things down. We have the mentorship of the Holy Spirit to see it all. Okay, not that we always do. We are again, we're we're like Thomas in the sense that there's things that we don't understand. There's things that we don't even want to accept at times or we're not ready to. Not for salvation, okay, but in our deepening understanding of who Jesus is and in all of its depth and all of the ramifications of it. So when I say he's strengthening their faith, that's really what I'm talking about. And very soon they're going to need it because, in fact, while Thomas wasn't right in the sense of saying when we get to our destination tomorrow or the next day, we're going to die. And and so is Jesus. Okay, the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus day is right around the corner and there will be a time when they'll be separated from him and they're going to need strength and that faith will fail them. Okay. Nevertheless, that's just more demonstration that they needed everything that Jesus gave them and they needed to believe it. And even and even though they, they fell short of that. And again, I don't know that we're all that much different at times that in moments of crisis, we sometimes fail to recall to mind, to trust, to believe the things that even if we heard them again and again, like they heard them again and again. OK, so getting back to Thomas. He speaks his mind. He calls it like he sees it. It's wrong, but he's honest. And he's usually saying the exact same thing that the rest of the disciples are thinking. He speaks for them. They aren't willing for whatever reason. Maybe they're shy. Maybe they don't want to look stupid. Maybe they're afraid of offending Jesus or whatever it might be. But he's not. He's going to just say, even though it's wrong, it turns out. But not exactly wrong. You see, the way that he speaks reflects a certain point of view. He just points out which doesn't make sense to him. Right. You know, there's a lot of people in in Bible classes, studies and churches. Things don't make sense to them either. But most of the time they don't want to say. Right. They don't want to point it out. Or it's like in a class if you have a teacher And nobody will understand what the teacher just said, right? But there might be only one student who's going to say, I don't understand, right? And everybody's like, oh, how can you not understand? But in reality, they didn't either, right? They're really happy that somebody was able to say that. That's Thomas. He's very realistic, and he's going to speak that when he sees something he doesn't get, when it doesn't make sense to him, he comes out with it. He's bold in that respect. He's wrong. But we're going to see that that's not the worst thing in the world. Sometimes the worst thing in the world is to hide your lack of understanding because then you don't move to the next step. And that next step, we're going to see how that how Jesus, in a sense, uses Thomas's honesty to bring them all along to the next step. So that's Thomas. So, again, in verse 16, he is expressing an anxiety that the whole group shares they're, they're all afraid to go to back into Judea, back to Jerusalem. So he's really just expressing the anxiety that everybody is having. Let us also go so that we may die with him. He was sure that following Jesus to Jerusalem meant certain death for Jesus, but also for them. 
And in that, he was half right. Because Jesus would die when he goes to Jerusalem. He would. But that death that he died, he'd have to die alone. The, the, other, the disciples couldn't die with him because they couldn't die for the sins of the world. Only Jesus could do that. And as a matter of fact, none of them at that point in time died. On the day that Jesus was taken to Golgotha and crucified, they were all still alive at the end of the day. So only he was the one who was really going to die in Jerusalem. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. This is the, this is the second time we see Thomas and, his, and, and, John, and John, the writer of the gospel, reveals something more about his character. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is the, Jesus in the upper room. He's there only with his disciples. By the way, that though, at least in John's record, Thomas only speaks up in the manner he does when it's private between Jesus and the disciples. Okay, so he doesn't challenge Jesus in public, but when that's in that group, that close knit group where nothing should be hidden from one another, that's when he speaks up. In any event, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, Jesus says. And notice again that he's talking to his disciples very late in the game, so to speak, after his public ministry is over. And he's still exhorting them to believe in him. You see, not for salvation. But as we're going to see, let's believe in him when he tells them something new. All right. That they may not understand it first. He's exhorting them, take this information and believe this also. Just like we have the same thing in our spiritual lives. We hear the gospel and we believe in Jesus Christ as our savior and we're saved, we're justified. But then we're, we're, we should be on a course where we, 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 we are into the word of God on a regular basis, right? That's the way it's designed to be. Um, we can look at the ministry of Paul. We can look at times when Paul was in a room at night and he was preaching for hours so much so that a young man fell and went to his death and Paul raised him from the dead, by the way. So that's the, that's the design. Okay. Normal Christian life is that after you believe in Christ for salvation, then you adopt a course of learning. You see, what is that learning? More and more about, first and foremost, Jesus Christ. So we, may, we hear that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was raised for our justification. But then we, we, we go on and we realize that when he died, we died with him. As a matter of fact, at the cross, God the Father judged sin entirely, the very thing, sin, in the body of Jesus Christ. And then we realize that our old man, okay, which is a concept that we didn't understand at when the moment we heard the gospel, not hardly. We needed to learn a lot of other things to understand that this sin issue is way bigger than we thought. It's not just our personal sins at all. There's something at the root of that. And, and, and Paul calls it the old man, right? And we learned that that old man was crucified with Christ. All that we were in our pre-salvation way of life, the, what we did, but particularly the way we thought our attitudes was all in a man who's been crucified. And when we believe in Christ, now we are 
as Jesus, as, as Paul would say, all things are new. We are new creation. We, we are now in the new man. That's something radical to the first time you hear it. I hope it was also something that was amazingly freeing. It was for me when I first understood that. Right. So so that's the way we're not that much different from the disciples. And a lot of people go to a certain point with what the Bible has to say about them and about God and about Jesus. And they stop. And that means that they, 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 they're now limited beyond what they could have understood about who Jesus is. All right. Verse 14, chapter 14, verse one. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What an incredible promise that is, that he is going to come again and receive the church, the body of Christ, to himself, so that where he is, okay, in, in heaven, where, where the Father's house is, where there are many dwelling places, there all of us may be also. Now, now I think Thomas at this point understood enough to be really excited. This is, this is good news. That's where we want to be. We want to see the Father. We want to be with you, Jesus, forever. But then Jesus says, verse four, and you know the way where I am going. Now, they probably should have. But you can mark it down that they didn't. OK, they didn't know, at least not the way that he just described it. Wait, there's a house. We're going. Well, we like to know the way. We don't know the way, Lord. You said we do, but we don't. Verse five, they were all thinking that. But who speaks up about it? Our friend Thomas. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? See, he speaks up and then Jesus took an opportunity and notice what he took an opportunity to say. OK, he didn't say, Thomas, you're dumb. You didn't listen to me before, even though all of that is probably true. Instead, he takes this opportunity to tell them something new about himself. I am that I am. Remember that that amazing thing he says to bring out the fact that he is the Lord of the Old Testament. He is God in the flesh. And then something new. He says, you don't you're thinking about the way in a certain manner. But I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your mind. I am it. I am the way. See, in a sense, that's the whole gospel of John. Whatever you may have thought about who God is. Now I'm here. I'm God in the flesh. And it's all it's all built into me. The individual, this Jesus that is with you. That's what he's going to say in chapter 11. After all, Martha, as we, this, the last verse we're going to get to today, she says, Lord, I know I know that he will rise again in the last day. What was that? That was a certain understanding that the Jews of that day had about resurrection. And it was correct. And we're going to see this next week that the Old Testament did say exactly that in, in several places. So it's not like what she thought was wrong. It's just she needed to have her eyes open 
to the magnificence of the one who was standing before her. Same as Thomas. Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way. And then he adds, you see, takes an opportunity. Oh, and by the way, I am the truth. See, see, this is something that actually is revealed to the disciples for the first now, first time. We know this, or we should, because in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And it's a short step from that to understanding that he is truth. But now he gets an opportunity to tell his disciples that. I am the way and the truth and the life. And the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now again, at this point, before Jesus spoke, none of the disciples really knew where Jesus was going. But at least Thomas is brave enough to risk something none of us likes to risk, and that is looking stupid. (laughs) He was willing. Now, why was he willing to look dumb and look foolish at this point in time? Well, it's because he honestly wanted to know the way. He was willing to look stupid if he could learn something. That's a good role model for all of us. So many people want people to think they're smart. And in reality, the dumbest thing you can do when you don't understanding is to lie to yourself and say that you do. But Thomas had such a desire. I want to know the way. I want to know where you're going. I want to know more about this, that he spoke right up. He wanted to know the way. The, see, the issue wasn't really that he was un, un, not believing, but he had reached the limits of his understanding. And he was saying, I don't get it. You got to tell me more. And that gives Jesus the opportunity to reveal something new about who he is. He is the great I am, which he has said already, but now he's going to connect another dot. I am the way. You see, in this regard, in this regard of Thomas in a private setting with the other disciples, speaking up and expressing the limits of his understanding, it turns out that what Thomas really is, is the perfect foil Jesus. All right. What is a foil? It's somebody that says something that somebody else can respond to. All right. It's often somebody who who is going to display their ignorance or some manner their shortcoming. And then another person comes in. It's like um, there's a there's a foil or straight man, we call it in comedy. Right. There's somebody who says the thing that in a minute is going to make him look ridiculous. But he says it anyway, because it sets up in that case, the joke. But in this case, it sets up Jesus to be able to address a limitation in knowledge that a lot of people have, at least at that point. So you you can picture this at this point where Jesus is saying this. And and at that point, he's really displaying his hard nosed realists. Right. I don't see it. I don't know it. I got to see it. I need the evidence. Well, Jesus is saying, "Okay, I get it. I see where you're at, but. I'm going to introduce you again to the one who came down from heaven. You say, you're over here on earth trying to look at evidence. Remember, remember, Thomas, I came from heaven. And I have things still to reveal to you. By the way, that's exactly what we're going to see in it, what we do see in John chapter 11. We not only see it with Thomas, but we're going to see the same thing with Martha. She's, she will reach the limits of her understanding of resurrection. And Jesus will say the same two words. I am. Okay, you understand resurrection in a certain way, a future event, an event. 
I'm telling you that it's way beyond that. That in fact, I embody resurrection. Now, take that and then start to realize who I am. Start to realize some of the implications of what I just said. Okay. Now, Thomas got the nickname Doubting Thomas because of what he said in John 20, the third place where Thomas shows up. Let's go there now. John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. What he says here is what a lot of people grasp to say, aha, here's Doubting Thomas. Okay, fair enough. We're going to see even here, though, that he's just being consistent with, with his character. And not only that, but you can't stop. Okay, you can't stop with this, his statement of unbelief. You have to keep going. Why? Because he once again will set Jesus up. Now he, but he'll be the foil for Jesus, and then Jesus will say something and show them something, and then Thomas will come back and, and, and in a sense, completely cancel out what he just said and say that say the most straightforward and direct statement that anybody could say. Okay, about who Jesus really is. So we'll, let's see this now. John chapter 20, verse 24. But Thomas, now the setting is, is that after the resurrection, Jesus walks through the doors of the upper room and presents himself to the apostles. Here, of course, John calls them disciples, but they are the apostles also. And they, they all of a sudden, they can't deny what's in front of them. Right now, let's think about that for a minute. Why did they believe that Jesus raised was raised from the dead? These, after all, are the same people that when they heard from the women, they didn't believe them. Right. They didn't believe them. If you we won't we won't see that today. But it was only when they got the evidence. Right. That they believed. What was the evidence? Jesus stood right before them. But Thomas hadn't gotten that yet. See how we're tough on Thomas, but we really shouldn't be. If we're going to take that that position, we should have the same position for Peter and John and James and the rest of them. In any event, let's read John, John chapter 20, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. By the way, that word seen means what? We had all the evidence we needed, right? We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's how he gets the title, Doubting Thomas. I will not believe unless. But really, if you take a look at this, what is he asking for? Proof. Proof, evidence, right? Isn't that what a hard knows realist always wants. I, I, you say this, but I want the evidence. How many times have you said now there's different personality types, right? There are people who, who have a certain idealism, if, as it were, if I could use that word, who all, always want to believe stuff, the best and all. There are other people who will say, wait a minute, I, I, I'm not going to believe, believe this blindly. You're going to have to show me some evidence. Okay. This is still unbelief. Don't get me wrong. But let's not be too hard on Thomas about this. Unless unless I see the hand is in his Jesus hands, the imprint of the nails 
and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Now, Thomas was standing there and he must have felt a little foolish. Right. Here's Jesus. He walked through. He walked through a door. Here he is. I see him. I would say at that point, he probably put aside any other doubts he had. And but Jesus was going to make a point himself here. You see, again, Thomas is the perfect foil. You want to know why? Because this mindset, it, it shouldn't be foreign to us. OK, we we ourselves have a part of us that needs evidence at times. I dare say that if we had been through the trauma of the crucifixion and the burial, we too might be in a place, a mental state, an emotional state, a beaten down state. And be careful because it's at that those points often where you know we have enemies in terms of not people, but the flesh and the powers and principalities. And they will believe me, they will pounce on opportunities with us, too, when we're weak, when we're beaten down. So, but Jesus is going to take the opportunity. Notice, then then Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, all right, this is what you asked for. Here you have it. Reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here, your hand, and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, Bold statement, amazing thing, clear, direct. See, that's the thing about hard-nosed realists. Once he's convinced, he's convinced. I mean, it's the same thing with Paul, right? Paul was brutally against all of Christianity and all the message of the gospel until, until what? He got the evidence, right? Jesus speaks to him and says, you're persecuting me when you persecute those people. He knew now Jesus is the Lord of heaven. Same thing with Thomas. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you've seen me now, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And of course, that's us. Right. Who here has seen the body of the resurrected Jesus? Right. But what do we have? We have the word, exactly. We have the gospel. We have the truth that sets us free. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Here's Thomas, of course, is always what? Being realistic. He might think himself as sober-minded. I need evidence. And evidence is exactly what Jesus gives him. But once he has the evidence he clearly needed, and by the way, Jesus was willing to show him the evidence that he needed, you see, we the thing that is very convincing to me about the fairness and justice of God is the fact that he God will always go the extra step so that whoever you are, if you need something to believe in Jesus, he's going to provide it. He, he may have wished that you would just believe, but he's going to provide it. You know, you read of people um, who, who spent years, as it were, doubting 
the truth. Maybe it was the truth about the resurrection. Maybe it was the truth that Jesus ever existed. Okay. Well, you know what? God sends to those people, if they're willing and open, the information that they need. That's how God is. So what I'm saying is, is that I don't believe that anybody in the world has any excuse, ultimately, for not believing in Jesus Christ. Because I see the lengths to which God goes, the lengths to which he went. Hey, look, if he hadn't sent his son, none of us would have any clue about the, the grace of God, the righteousness of God. So even with us, before we get on a high horse and say, well, I didn't need all that. Well, you know what? You needed Jesus to come and you needed him to die for you and you needed him to be raised from the dead. And you needed to be God, be the type of God who if there were a hundred and there was one out there in trouble, he would leave the ninety nine and go. That's the God we have. You see, see, now what happens with Thomas is that now that he's convinced what he does once again, consistent with his personality of courage, right, as well as being hard nosed. He now speaks the words that no one had dared to utter before now. I mean, nobody except, of course, Jesus himself and the writer, John. But I'm talking about the other disciples. No one ever said it as directly, clearly and boldly as what Thomas said. It is great confession of faith. What Thomas finally said about who Jesus is, my Lord and my God. This is the most direct statement about the deity of Christ that anybody in his public ministry and his even in his inner circle said before he died and rose from the I mean, before um, it's the most bold and direct statement, definitely in the Gospel of John. I mean, you do have the centurion who said, truly, this is the son of God. So I won't say universally, but but here in the Gospel of John, it is. And it's really direct and simple. Right. My Lord and my God. Let's now return to John chapter 11, starting in verse 17, or continuing rather, in verse 17. John eleven seventeen. 17. So we have Thomas imploring the disciples, let's go with him. We're going to die, but let's do it. A little grim, but courageous. And now Jesus heads off and, and actually lands there as it were look at john eleven seventeen. so when jesus came to bethany near jerusalem he found that he lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days now bethany was near jerusalem about two miles off and many of the jews had come to martha and mary to console them concerning their brother martha therefore when she heard that jesus was coming went out to meet him But Mary stayed at the house and Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. We've seen the significance of the four days, but it bears repeating. Why? Because the significance is that by the fourth day after death, a corpse would start to decompose. It's that simple. And the thing you need, you might say, well, wait a minute. I I know that I my grandmother when she died. Well, gosh, we didn't we didn't have the funeral for a couple of weeks and we went to the wake and the party was there. It wasn't it wasn't right. Why? Because we have we have a technique called embalming. But the Jews didn't embalm their corpses. You see, they they washed the body, they anointed it with perfume and they wrapped it in grave clothes. Therefore, they made sure 
that that body was buried within 24 hours of death. This is dramatically depicted in an incident that Luke records in the book of Acts. Let's go there now. It's dramatic for a lot of reasons. The statement it makes is uh, right to the point on something that, that, that the disciples of that time and even us today need to understand about, about God, about giving. And I'm talking about a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. Let's look at Acts chapter 5 verse 1. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. That was within their rights, of course. That's their property. They can sell it. And they kept back some of the price for him. And he kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceded, conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. What is that all about? Well, he had made a decision, you know what, I'm going to sell this property and give it all to the, to the brothers and sisters in Christ. But, and, I'm, and, and what this is telling us is that he had done that before God. Okay? It was, it was something that he had offered already, as it were. And then he pulled back some of it. That was the great sin. That was how Satan got in there, all right, to make him try to think about himself, to go back on a decision he made before the Lord. Verse 5. I mean, it's not funny, but it's dramatic. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up, they covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Same day. Verse 7, now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, Sapphira, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. She's trying to pull one over on, not realizing that Peter had already discovered the fact that the the price was greater, okay, than what now Peter's quoting her. But yet she's going to lie to Peter, right? Yes, that was the price. And then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together? Now I see it's not just your husband, it's you to put the spirit of the Lord to the test. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband. A shock, remember what? My husband is dead. Those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. She died and the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and they buried her beside her husband. And a great fear came over the whole church. And over all who heard of these things, I'll bet it did. Now, we didn't get, I don't want to get into the, 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 the details of what, what the message is here, other than to say that, you know what? It's not a good thing when you lie to God. Okay. You are, now, don't get, don't get crazy on me and think that everybody who lies to God is going to drop dead. And therefore, everybody who hasn't dropped dead must have always been truthful and honest with the Lord. No, there are things that happen in the book of Acts that are really one time things 
like the, a lot of the miracles, by the way, like like even water baptism. There were one time things to illustrate something. And you know what? Now we should get the lesson. The real lesson here is be fearful of the power of the Lord. You know, in that sense, respect who he is. Don't take advantage of the grace that you've been given. In any event, now let's go back. Now seeing that they had to bury the body within 24 hours, now let's go back to our, to our passage, John eleven eighteen. John eleven eighteen. And now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Now here, John mentions exactly how close Bethany was to Jerusalem. It was less than two miles away. This basically underscores now the danger that is closing in on Jesus. We already know that Jerusalem is the hotbed for his enemies. That's where they are. That's where they have their greatest power. He's coming pretty close. He's not there yet, but he's coming close. The danger is closing in on him. It says here that many Jews had come from Jerusalem to console Martha and Mary as they mourned the death of their brother Lazarus. Many Jews. Now, this tells us a couple of things about Martha and Mary and indeed the family, including Lazarus. You see, the fact that many Jews travel from Jerusalem out there indicated that they were prominent, right, that they were well off and that they were devout. Okay. In other words, this was a this was a this was somebody who everybody wanted to go and be present and mourn. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that um, these a lot of them were relatives, neighbors and friends, but also mourners who were sent, if I could put it that way, or went to certain, you know, families who had just suffered the death of a loved one. Now, we see that expression, um, the Jews, many of the Jews. And I think by now we're programmed, right, first to say, okay, Jews, that must mean the enemies of Jesus, right? How many times have I said that to you? But here it doesn't, okay? It's not saying many of the chief priests and Pharisees came. No, it's basically just talking about People who lived near and around Jerusalem. So we shouldn't always jump to the conclusion that when John says the Jews, he's always talking about the chief, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees. Here's an example where he isn't. Now, although this this doesn't refer to the religious leaders that Jesus that wanted Jesus dead, it turns turns out we'll see this. Verse 46 indicates that actually some of the people there were really in league with. They had sympathies with the Pharisees. When we get there, we'll see that. Basically, they're going to go over the Pharisees and tell them what happened and kind of stir them up. And that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, but let's also look at the word many. Many, right? Many Jews came to console them. Well, why were there so many? Well, for, but let me just say that it's absolutely no accident that there are many Jews, okay, at the home of Martha and Mary. They were prominent. They were devout. But beyond that, it was actually a religious and social duty for Jews to comfort the bereaved. 
I'll add, by the way, that that's not any different today among the Jewish people. They have very prescribed things that they're they, they're expected that they expect of themselves. You know, there'll be I forget the word right now, but there's a point in time where there's a, for a few days after their loved one has deceased, they basically cloister themselves, put themselves they're in their home, and, and everyone comes to them and spends some time quietly. So even today. But but then especially it was a religious and social duty for the Jews to comfort the bereaved, particularly interestingly enough, during the first three days after the death of their loved one. Why do I say that? Well, because this is the fourth day. So they'd been there for three days. And of course, there's that finality right after the third day that they realize this is definitely over. But more to the point, beyond understanding the practical reasons, religious reasons, why there were many there, You know what the most important reason why is? God the Father had arranged all of this, right? He had arranged this, perhaps their all of it, the prominence, the religious practice, all of that is ultimately going to serve God the Father's purpose. Witnesses, right? Many witnesses of what Jesus is going to do at the tomb of Lazarus. Verse 20 again, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha and Mary. That's another. We sort of have stereotypes in our minds, too, right? Martha and Mary are busy, busy about everything. Mary has chosen the better part. And that's all true. But let's not beat up too much on Martha. Because, again, she had a certain way, okay, of expressing, really, her devotion. And there's nothing wrong with that. You see, Mary was the dutiful. She, again, saw duties that were involved, in hospitality, in, in welcoming people, in expressing her, her, her happiness. Her way of doing it was to be active. Her way of doing it was to arrange hospitality, go out and meet them, have a meal ready, you know, wait on the people. That was her way. And there's, it's a beautiful thing. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Mary was the quieter, the more passive of the two. So when it came time for, for, for the, the sisters to listen to the Lord, it was really Mary who did that, okay? And Jesus said, that's the better thing to do, a lesson for all of us. But not only that, Mary would hardly went, Martha rather, hardly went to him, and there was a reason for that. She needed to say something to Jesus. It had been something that had been welling up and building in her heart for these past four days. And, and this is what it is. Look at verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now, Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. But it's those words, if you had been here. This is a sentiment that others will repeat later on. And it's sometimes in a a harsh, almost condemning way. You know, as a matter of fact, some in the crowd will say, well, you know what? He could have he could have been here earlier. Right. He could have. Why didn't he? You know. He'd perform this miracle. Why didn't he come and perform the miracle of making sure the Lazarus didn't die? He had healed other people. He had gone to the um, nobleman's son. He didn't go there, but he, from a distance, he healed the nobleman's son. He was at a distance here. Why didn't he heal Lazarus, right? Skepticism, a little bit of resentment. But that's not Mary. When she says, if you had been here, she is not rebuking Jesus. Not at all. She was genuinely expressing her great sorrow, her regret, 
oh, I wish you were here. I really wish you were here. Because I know if you were, I have total trust that he wouldn't, my son, my brother wouldn't. I know how much you love him. And I know that if you'd been here, you would have taken care of things and he wouldn't have died. She was certain of that. Whatever it had, whatever he had to do, she was certain that he would, she would save his, her brother's life before he died. Well, all that means is that she had great faith in him. That's all. She was, she had a lot of sorrow in her heart. I wish he'd been here. I had great, he had, she had total faith that Jesus would have done something. But, and notice, even now, even now she had hope because of who Jesus was, because of the power he could command whenever his father willed it so. But she didn't know, of course, what the father's will was. And as a matter of fact, she, she in a moment is going to acknowledge that in, a, in an interesting way, a, way, a silent way. But here she's confident that Jesus' prayer is going to be answered, going to be answered, whatever it would be, right? Whatever it was. And you see, she didn't presume to say any more. She didn't. You might say, why didn't she say, please, if you ask the father, he'll bring Lazarus back even after four days. Why? Because she wasn't going to intrude on that relationship between Jesus and his father, especially when she understood that Jesus was only always and only going to do the work that the father ordained him to do. You know, in that respect, it's reminiscent of the words that the, the mother of Jesus, Mary, spoke the first miracle back in chapter two, when the wine had run out at the wedding at Cana. Remember what she said? She said this in John 2, 5. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. She too didn't, didn't, didn't dictate it a thing, right? Whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever you ask of God right now, I know he will grant it. Now, now clearly, she in her heart, she probably was hoping, obviously, that he would ask the father to bring Lazarus back. But she didn't, she wasn't presumptive in that way. Leaving the door wide open for the sovereignty of God which is a pretty remarkable thing. But what, but okay, so what did Jesus say? Look at verse 23. This was Jesus' response now. This is where it gets really fascinating. Fortunately, we're going to have to stop in a few minutes, but that's okay. The suspense will be there for next week. Jesus said to her, She said, whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. You know what? That's the sort of thing that anyone who wished to console a grief-stricken person who had recently lost a loved one might say, right? Haven't you said that? (laughs) A Christian friend of yours lost a husband, like. And you go to them and you try to console them by saying, you know, this isn't it. Right. You're going to see your brother again. Right. And that's the way Martha took it. And certainly as a first impression, I don't think Jesus didn't want to say that. I mean, didn't have the intent, first of all, to comfort her. He surely did. But it's going to be much more than that. And we're going to see that next week. But notice Martha's response. Verse 24. Martha said to him. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so she was basically affirming what she should have in the sense of 
This was taught. It's in the Old Testament. We're going to see this next week. So she was basically expressing her faith that what the Old Testament said is true. I know. I know. I believe for certain what the Bible says, that I will see him again, that there will be a resurrection in the last day, and I will see him again. He will rise again. Martha was thought she was basically and only stating the widely held and scripturally sound Jewish belief in that general resurrection of the dead as an event on the last day. But of course, perhaps she was hoping for more. And in fact, Jesus was about to say a great deal more. As the heavens are higher than the earth, more. What Jesus will say next will be startling in its clarity. Like a brilliant bolt of lightning in the night sky. Like that. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the clarity of your word to to see how you do have your son always in the right place at the right time, though people don't think so. Always doing the work you've asked him to do. Always giving people opportunities to believe in him as the Christ, as the son of God here in the gospel of John. So father, we, we thank you for your kindness and your exceeding kindness to us in that you have given us the, the totality of your word for us to continue to grow and grow and grow in the knowledge of who your son is and the knowledge as Paul would say, the coming to know the power of his resurrection as well as the, as the consolation of his death. So, Father, we ask today that we would, as, as we always try to keep in mind, um, as, we, as we have built, been built up today, that we too would share this with, with people who haven't been built up, haven't even been in, in a place where they believed in your son before that. Perhaps we don't know, but we're hopeful, just like Martha was hopeful, that something that we utter, the gospel of Jesus Christ, will this time penetrate the hearts of somebody and that the spirit, having acted upon that heart, this one will believe in your son. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Ah, you're welcome, Peter. We'll see you on Thursday evening, everybody. Right? Right. Right. You know why I say that? I'll tell you why I say that. I'll tell you two reasons why I say that. The first one is, is that it is part of the teaching ministry of Lighthouse Bible Search. The second reason, though, is, is that there's, a, there's something different that goes on on Thursdays. I don't know if I'm a little more relaxed. I don't know what it is. I think it's the format, actually. I think it's the idea that we're entering into a more detailed study and, and there's things that um, get brought out there that are different. And, and, and in some respects, the way in which we, that happens might even, might even, I could dare to say it, a little bit better <laughs> in certain respects. So I invite you, if you possibly can, to join us, be a part of that. All right. Um, and that's all I'll say. The opportunity to say something. The opportunity to pray at the end. So it's a, it's, it's a different thing. It's why we offer it. So keep that in mind. Possibly can try to try to join us. Okay, and with that, you're dismissed.